Welcome to the Duke IBD Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Jane Onken. I would like to welcome you to the Duke IBD Podcast series. My name is Jane Onken. I'm one of the gastroenterologists here at Duke, uh, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Anne, who goes by Margie. Uh, Shelton. Margie is a registered dietitian with over 30 years of experience in a wide variety of settings, both gastroenterology and non-GI, and we are fortunate to have lured her away from her previous position to join our faculty at Duke to help us in our efforts to offer even more comprehensive GI care that now includes a much more detailed approach to nutrition. Our focus today will be on diet and nutrition as they pertain to inflammatory bowel disease, in particular Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So, Margie, let me begin by asking how some of your recommendations differ with respect to these two diseases. Well, thank you, Jane. Thank you for inviting me to speak today. I'm very glad to be here and very glad to be helping some of our Duke GI patients to be able to get to a better place with their nutrition. Um, As far as your question goes, uh, the differences in the recommendations for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, um, those differences are more related to what is actually happening with the patient to some degree. So say for example, with Crohn's disease, it's common to have strictures. And so if they're having bowel obstructions or issues with that, then, um, then there may be different diet recommendations rather than ulcerative colitis where they're having rectal bleeding and not able to really control maybe diarrhea that's uncontrolled. And so the recommendations that I make are really around the individual and the symptoms that they're having. Um, if it's just uh, Crohn's disease and like it's a new diagnosis of Crohn's and they, they are having a minimum flare and not a lot going on, it's more of an educational base of what is Crohn's disease, nutritionally what are they at risk for, what kinds of vitamins or minerals should we be looking for, how often should they be checking, if they have diarrhea, what should we do with that. So it really kind of depends on what stage they're in. Terrific. So you mentioned stricturing, which is uh, a, a not uncommon complication of Crohn's in a subpopulation. Can you tell me what you what your recommendations are to the patients who have stricturing? Obviously, at some point they may require surgery, but up until that point, or even in the early postoperative period, are there recommendations you have for the patients who have focal strictures? I think the first thing I'd like to say, just because having Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, it's naturally a catabolic state. So their nutritional needs, as far as energy needs and protein needs and things like that, are higher than they would be in somebody that didn't have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So the the risk of weight loss, malnutrition, malabsorption, all those things are so much higher that nutrition becomes a paramount focus with both of these diseases because things can change so quickly, especially with Crohn's. Mm-hmm. Um, So as far as stricturing goes and how to handle that, I find that a lot of patients have signs that they know themselves about things that are coming on. Like, for example, I had a Crohn's patient that I saw today who said, I lose my appetite and I can't 
and I get full really quickly. And these are signs that something is going on with him, and it's usually about stricturing. So, and that's just commonplace for him. So, you know, we talked about using things like um, nutritional oral supplements, um, things like that are high in calories and protein that are liquid so that they don't cause the bulk issue um, potentially if there's a stricture happening. Um, also, it's easier to drink than it is a lot of times to eat solid food when your appetite's not very good anyway. So it's important to get those calories and protein in even when you don't really feel like eating. And an oral nutritional supplement sometimes just short term to get you through that rough spot is the best way to go. Right. So they can get a large number of calories in a small volume uh, and that may help. Uh, offset some of the symptoms they're having with meals, with food. Yeah, and keep them from declining nutritionally very quickly. Do you find any of the medications we use impact their nutritional needs? Um, especially steroids, yes. We, um, one of the things with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis that's very common is uh, bone disease. And so in a population of, um, of Crohn's patients, you know, even without the steroids, steroids increase the loss of calcium. So it increases your risk for the bone disease. However, um, there's a 50% prevalence for IBD patients for osteopenia. And it goes to 15% for osteoporosis. But because of that, you know, they found in studies that actually people have that, that loss of bone and risk of osteopenia even before they start steroids. So the steroids definitely don't help that process, but it's already there just based on the disease state. So things like taking calcium and vitamin D are very important in both of these conditions. So do you usually advise patients to increase their calcium and vitamin D intake when they are taking steroids? I'll tell you, um, yes, I think that's an important process to do. But part of it is, you know, like doing a diet recall, even just on a baseline diet, to get a feel with a new Crohn's patient as to how much calcium and vitamin D are you actually having in your diet. If you are lactose intolerant, which often goes hand in hand with Crohn's disease, um, and you're not eating other things that maybe other people can eat, like cheese, and just basically no dairy products, you're not gonna be able to meet those calcium needs with things like spinach. It's just not gonna happen. So having that supplement is really important. Mm -hmm. How about uh, in terms of the patients who have had a previous resection? Some, not all, but a good proportion of our Crohn's patients, particularly those with small bowel disease, at some point end up having a piece of their small intestine removed. And what we find in the clinic is that sometimes the diarrhea that occurs after surgery goes away over time or gets better over time, but in some patients it just doesn't. Um, they frequently have postprandial diarrhea and trying to help them sort of find a way to meet their nutritional needs, but many of them lose weight because they avoid eating because when they eat they get diarrhea mm -hmm. and so it's more of a self-imposed restriction than any uh, true uh, metabolic or derangement that causes their right. weight loss right and that's a, a really good time to see a dietitian if they're available to you because 
again, that weight loss, the self-imposed restrictions because of the diarrhea, it's going to happen quickly and you can decline very quickly, especially after surgery when you're needing all those extra protein and calories and things like that. Um, so when you, when I think there are certain foods that are better tolerated post-surgery when you've had a, a resection of some kind. Um, and a lot of times soluble fibers will help to be easier on the gut. And the difference between those two um, in the sense of fibers, insoluble fiber is one that does add bulk to stool, but it also, a lot of it doesn't get broken down. So it's harder kind of on our system. Soluble fiber foods, on the other hand, actually dissolve completely in the gut and they, it leaves a sticky kind of substance in there that can help with either diarrhea or constipation. So if you can't do things that are more roughage kinds of things that seem to make the problem worse, then going in the direction of more soluble fiber foods like white rice, applesauce rather than apples, um, bananas, mango, uh, sweet potatoes, potatoes, those kinds of things all are easier on your gut and can be better tolerated so that you don't, and, and potentially could help your diarrhea. One observation I have made in clinic over the years is that patients have a very specific type of lettuce they can or cannot eat. And I will have some patients say, I can eat salad, but I cannot eat romaine. I can eat salad, but I cannot eat iceberg. And it's very patient specific. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a reason for that degree of specificity about the type of lettuce they can eat? I don't know, that's interesting that you say that, uh, Dr. Onge, because I had a patient, the patient I saw this morning said he could eat spinach, but he couldn't eat any other kind of salad. Um, so I'm not sure about which is that. There is a big difference in fiber. And for example, spinach has more soluble fiber in it than some of the other ones. Now, romaine has more insoluble fiber, the greener kind of stuff that the Swiss chard, um, the bok choys, those kinds of things have a little bit more of that insoluble fiber and you might not do as well with those. Iceberg, I don't know what to say. It just doesn't have a lot of fiber anyway. If you don't right. do well with it, you don't do well with it. Right. And if there's anything I've learned from working in GI, it is that everybody is an individual and there is no one diet fits all for right. everybody. So what about patients who have an ostomy? Do you, do you recommend different, do you have different nutritional and dietary recommendations for the patients who've had an ileostomy or a colostomy? Yeah, well, the nutritional recommendations for those two things are actually completely different. And, and it has to do with the placement of the ostomy itself. So the higher up the ostomy is, for example, if it's an ileostomy, it's higher in the intestinal tract. So there's not as much time for absorption so you get a lot of loss into the bag. That's why ileostomy patients have very watery stools and they lose a lot of sodium and potassium and that water because normally where they would absorb water is much farther down in the colon. So if you have a colostomy that's farther down, you've got a lot more time to absorb a lot more nutrients, water, electrolytes, bile salts, all those things that can actually affect that, that stool. Uh, what are some of the most common vitamin deficiencies you see in the IBD patients, and what, what vitamins do you recommend we check, and how often? Well, I think that 
I think that if a patient has Crohn's disease, that annually they should have those vitamin and mineral kinds of checks, especially if they've had a Crohn's flare during the year and there's been some kind of damage potentially to the, that the gut membrane um, because that will also impact the continued absorption of those nutrients. So things, especially B vitamins, vitamin B12, folate, um, the calcium that we talked about earlier because of the bone disease. Um, iron is another one that's very common to be lost um, and not able to be absorbed and is very common that you have to supplement for that. Again, you'd have to eat you know, a lot of calves liver to actually make a difference and it's not a common food that we'd all wanna jump on. So um, this, supplementing with it is what's really required. Right, so that is interesting because many of the patients become anemic and in particular iron deficient, uh, but sometimes that's because of blood loss as a result of their active disease, particularly the ulcerative colitis patients. But I think it's important to remember that it's not always, they don't have to have active bleeding to become iron deficient. Some just have a poor absorption um, and that can happen as a result of the inflammatory process as well. Yeah, and again, when we talked about the corticosteroids earlier, that can also impact the absorption or the ability for the GI tract to do what it's supposed to. Are there any fad diets you like or don't like or recommend against? Fad diets, yes. I, I definitely have had a lot of questions about the ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. that it is the end-all be-all for fixing everything from cancer to ulcerative colitis. And there just is no information out there that the ketogenic diet they're, they're looking at it in an adult population, but at this point there is no real benefit to going to that, especially for our IBD patients. Um, any diet that's gonna eliminate specific food groups especially things like if you go with a ketogenic diet, you're gonna lose a lot of B vitamin foods in grains and cereals and things like that. And so you might be doing yourself more harm than good in trying to go with something like that. So whenever there's an elimination of an entire group of foods, it, I just don't think it's a good idea as a dietitian. So I can't tell you how glad we are to have you join our team uh, because one of the most common questions we are asked in the clinic is what diet do we recommend? And one of the most difficult things is to make a dietary recommendation. And typically we will default to eat a well-balanced diet uh, the, to the best of your ability. And if you find a particular food that always gives you symptoms, then avoid it. But it's a very low tech, low, low brow approach to a dietary recommendation. And I know our patients are delighted to be able to speak with someone who is much more knowledgeable, knowledgeable about diet and nutrition. So we're thrilled that you have joined our team. Thank you so much, Dr. Onkin. Thank you for listening to the Duke IBD Podcast.